In this episode, we get back to the discussion of death and dying. And in this conversation, I talked to Dr. Katie Waybill, who's a palliative care fellow here at Beth Israel. Katie does an extraordinary job voicing exactly what palliative medicine is all about. And I think it can be a really confusing and misunderstood portion of the hospital. The more you engage with palliative and the more you interact with these doctors, at least the more I've done this, the more I've really gained an appreciation for what their role is in the ICU, especially for patients who are critically ill for weeks on end. In this episode, you're going to hear Dr. Waybill talk about all the ways that she's dealt with difficult situations in the hospital and some of the tricks of the trade that she's learned along the way in this fellowship. I think most of you who listen to this episode, whether you knew something about palliative medicine or you knew nothing about it, will really gain an appreciation for how valuable these physicians are. Just when I was starting to think that I was getting good at family meetings, I realized I had a long way to go. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed my conversation with Katie. Welcome to CMO. Welcome to Collecting My Observations. Enter into the stream of thoughts that flow through the mind of an ICU fellow who is on his way to becoming an anesthesiologist and intensivist. This is where patients live on the verge of life and death. Welcome back to another episode of Collecting My Observations. In this series, we are going through morbidity and mortality and death and dying in the hospital. And as you gathered from the previous episode, my goal in this is to have multiple different perspectives on how death and dying happens in the hospital setting specifically. And so for this podcast, I'm bringing on Dr. Katie Waybill, who is one of the palliative care uh, fellows at Beth Israel Deaconess. Prior to being at Beth Israel, she was at Tufts Medical Center for a critical care fellowship. And prior to that, she was at VCU for internal medicine, um, where she completed her residency and then stayed on to do a chief uh, education resident year there. Uh, oddly enough, to sort of pull the curtain back on how this interview ended up happening, I had reached out to the palliative care uh, program director at Beth Israel, hoping that either that person would be able to chat with me or that he would have a suggestion from somebody from his team to chat with me. And he was the one who gave me the, uh, basically Katie's name to reach out to her and said that she would be an excellent person to talk to. He had no idea that Katie and I had actually been in a family meeting a couple of weeks uh, prior to me sending this email to him. So I actually knew Katie um, and we luckily got to meet in person prior to this conversation, which was hopefully should make this conversation much smoother and a little bit easier to get through. Um, but Katie, the, now that I brought that up, I haven't really debriefed that family meeting with anybody. And yeah. that was easily one of the most powerful family meetings I had ever been a part from or been mm -hmm. a part of. And really the only debriefing I did was going back to the ICU and the couple people from the ICU who were involved in that just being awestruck. Yep. What was what was your takeaway from that family meeting? So I think um, this is one of the things that really drew me into palliative care from the ICU in the first place. And I was really struck by this meeting as well. I think one of the things that we really try to do in palliative care and that we did in that family meeting is mapping out what the patient's goals and values are or their family's goals and values are, and then really trying to provide goal concordant care based on that. And Oftentimes, it can be a really helpful, fruitful conversation, and the answers become very clear very quickly. 
But sometimes, as was the case in the um, the case that we shared together a couple weeks ago, the values are misaligned with what the medical system is able to provide, or the values are different than the values that some of us as team members may bring into the room. And so one of the ways that I think palliative care can be really powerful is to help the family or the patient have a voice in what's important while also giving a safe space for the medical team to say both what's medically important and kind of share where their values are. And one of the things that we also do is we both hold space for the families, but also for the medical teams. And so I think that's one of the really neat things about palliative care and that I took away from that meeting was that while the medical facts and the family's goals were not aligning, we were able to put all of those things on the table and find common ground on how to move the care forward. Just to paint the picture for the listeners here, without getting into too much about the medical detail to give away any like HPI stuff, but we were in a pretty tight room with probably about 10 chairs and then we had to grab extra chairs because we had an abundance of people there. But from the ICU team, there was me, one of my residents, and then the attending surgeon ended up coming sort of in the halfway point of the meeting. Um, To my left was a social worker um, to my right, where um, you're you're attending and yourself um, representing the palliative care team. And then we also had the bedside nurse who was taking care of this patient. And then directly to my right was a translator because the patient's wife, uh, English was not her first language. And then across from me was the wife and the patient's son. And the son was doing most of the advocating, I would say, for his dad. And then the his mother or the patient's wife was also there to advocate for the patient as well, but because there was a language barrier that really, I think, hindered her ability to vouch for the patient. But I think the son obviously was really the most powerful voice in the room there. And then you can imagine any situation where you have to translate things, you almost double the amount of time your conversation is going to take. So this family meeting, I think, ended up being about an hour and a half, if not an hour and 45 minutes long. So it was, it was incredibly long and incredibly exhausting And I just remember my head was spinning right around the midpoint of it. And it came to such a beautiful resolution at the end, even though it didn't feel like we accomplished anything medically. To your point, we all understood, I think we all understood each other a little bit better, or at least me and the medical team understood the family better, which is probably the biggest importance of that family meeting. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, One of the ways that palliative care can be helpful is that our goal, we walk in and we aren't the primary team and we um, are able to be, we kind of have this line that we say almost to everybody and when we're introducing ourselves and it's that we're a team of doctors, but also, and importantly, nurses, social workers, chaplaincy and pharmacy. And we really work in an interdisciplinary team. We have IDT every single day. And the reason for that we say those things is because we provide an extra layer of support for families and their and patients um, and really help them 
to make sure that they feel supported and they feel heard in such medically dire times. Because unfortunately, most people who are meeting us are not in situations that um, are medically easy. Otherwise, we would not be getting consulted. Um, So that's one of the things that we really try to do is help people and help teams and families find that common ground. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because this was a scenario where it felt like medically we were really stuck against a rock and a hard place. And I don't think that changed because of the meeting. But I I really try not to do this. But I, whenever I reflect about how this family meeting went, it was clear that I went into that family meeting with an agenda to describe the clinical situation to this family, hoping and thinking that it was going to change their mind or their outlook of how their father was doing. Um, and ultimately, it really didn't change their perspective all that much, I don't think, because they were very strong held in their faiths and their beliefs. Um, and it made me really question my like my whole approach to family meetings and thinking to myself, like, I really shouldn't be putting my agenda or my feelings onto these families. I should all I, all my job is is to present the facts and present the options and trying to make that as non-biased as possible is probably my biggest takeaway from that meeting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. What drew not- you, what drew you to palliative medicine? Cuz this is not yeah. an easy field. So you went through internal medicine which is not easy. You went through pulmonary critical care medicine which is even harder. And then now you decided I'm going to take the most stressful and most medically complex and emotionally complex situations and become an expert in that. Yeah, it is definitely, it was definitely a roundabout route. So I was originally drawn to critical care because we spent a lot of time in the medical ICU where I was a resident and we were given and empowered and encouraged to um, lead family meetings under the guidance of our both fellows and attendings. And when I thought about back on my time, while I medically loved all of the patients that I took care of everywhere, so I didn't really want to give up anything, the most satisfying part with for me was helping patients and their families when the patients themselves couldn't speak, navigate critical illness and navigate what often were the worst days in their lives and have some of those conversations. And so between the medical, um, the medical complexity and intrigue of critical care I liked pulmonary medicine as well. And then the family connections, I really felt drawn to PulmCrit. Um, and I then started PulmCrit in July of 2020, which nobody needs reminding was a really um, dire time to be starting pulmonary and critical care. And so I spent the majority of my first year of fellowship taking care of patients with COVID-19, of course. Um, and one of the things that I really noticed was that when we were in the ICU and the patients had been in the ICU with COVID and the visitor restrictions were so stringent mm-hmm. that it really felt like it was hard to know whether we were, what we were doing for the patients was what was right. And it was causing a lot of moral distress, both for us as a medical team and for our nursing staff, but I think also for the families. And I noticed that when we would call palliative care, which was not all the time, it seemed like the care would change in some way, or that if the care didn't change, the team felt much more comfortable with the care that we were providing. And I thought to myself, what are they doing differently than I'm doing? Like I've done a lot of family meetings in my life. I mean, in my brief career, I felt like Mm -hmm. I had done enough. And in the ICU, we get the opportunity to do a lot, but 
I quickly realized that we didn't actually receive any formalized communication training, either in my residency or in my fellowship surrounding family meetings. So it was very much a see one, do one, teach one model. Mm -hmm. And that when I watched palliative care, they had a specific structure that they used for family meetings that actually helped figure out what was important to the patient. So that was the first thing that drew me to it. And then um, with it being a combined fellowship with pulmonary, I realized that there was a really high symptom burden in patients with pulmonary disease and that there were a lot of patients with pulmonary disease who end up admitted to the intensive care unit who really haven't had great conversations surrounding their the status of their illness, the possible trajectory, um, or when we were reaching end of the line therapies for them. And so that would, the combination of those things and being able to treat those patients with end-stage lung disease, and then all of those patients in the ICU and become a communication expert were the two things that kind of drew me to do the extra year. And you point out the fact that when you're in critical care medicine, and I see the exact thing happening now, where sometimes palliative medicine is consulted and sometimes they're not. And it seems like certain attendings are very opinionated about the role and the utility that palliative medicine can offer for their patients. And I think it comes down to some critical care attendings either, you know, absolutely hate consults and just kind of want to do all of the work on their own. And others are much more willing to engage in asking for help. Um, so how, how do you, how have you seen that progress in like the last four years? So I definitely agree. Some people are, um, much more open to having consultants in general. And I think there is a little bit of a culture shift happening, particularly post COVID, but it probably was happening a little bit before where I think people across medicine are realizing that as patients are getting sicker and our censuses are getting bigger, we really need to be able to work collaboratively with people in all different types of fields. Um, and that includes recognizing that we cannot be experts in everything. Mm -hmm. And so finding a balance between ownership and um, allowing expert assistance is something that I think is happening a lot in the ICUs. I also think that oftentimes in the ICUs, there is a strong sense of ownership. I know certainly when I was in the intensivist, I felt a strong sense of ownership of my patients. And that is both a blessing and a curse. And so when palliative medicine can get involved and has the opportunity to work with some of these patients, it really allows there to be a non, a, a third party in the room who has not been taking care of the patients the whole time um, and can really serve as that bridge between the medical team and the, the patient and their family, regardless of how strong that relationship already is, um, but can just help bolster that and make sure that everything is feeling comfortable and in line with goals for everybody who's involved. I'm going to go back to our example of the family meeting that we had and kind of like play off of what you just said there. So the thing that really impressed me about your team was we had just engaged you, at least the two of you, I think that day. 
and you guys very quickly were able to be caught up to speed in terms of what the active issues were going on for that patient. Mm -hmm. And it brought not only a fresh set of eyes, but people who weren't tired of taking care of this patient. And that fatigue, ICU fatigue happens when you are just taking care of patients for weeks on end. Because yes. majority of patients who are in the ICU are not there for weeks. Ideally, they're there for a few days, you tune them up and they get downgraded. They may stay in the hospital for weeks, but majority of patients do not stay in the ICU for weeks. And when you have the same patient and you're talking about the same problems for a few weeks and the nurses are exhausted and you feel like you're not seeing family or the the impression that you're getting from the family doesn't align from the impression that you have as a medical provider, it really grinds you down and it can really frustrate you. And I think having you guys in there with a fresh set of eyes was just a very refreshing voice to have in that room. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you felt that way. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that you're obviously working locally here in Boston. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like from what I've heard, at least from your program director and kind of what I've seen very quickly on Twitter when I just looked you up, was that you're involved um, on a national level and you really care about palliative medicine and its role in critical care medicine. So how have you seen palliative medicine utilized not only in Boston, but nationally? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think that palliative medicine is still a really young specialty. Um, it actually hasn't, I believe the first board for palliative medicine was within the last 15 years. Um, and so many people actually who are my seniors are actually like they were grandfathered in and found a passion for this. Um, but one of the ways that I've seen it really evolve in the ICUs is that I think people have recognized that much to your point, there is a lot of fatigue surrounding some of these ongoing day-to-day -day conversations. And that when, and that oftentimes when there is a sense of fatigue, it's because we don't completely understand what the family or end patient understand or are hoping for. And so one of the ways that I've seen palliative evolve, even in, I graduated medical school eight years ago, almost eight years ago. And the way I've seen it evolve is that it really allows the ICU team to be the doctors, the medical team. Mm -hmm. It allows the family to be the family and it lets somebody else carry the burden of how do we resolve those two things. And so I've seen over time, and it's very institution dependent. We have this mantra in palliative care where if you've seen one palliative care program, you've seen one palliative care program. <laughs> um, and that's very true. I've been yeah, in three I can imagine. and they're all yeah. vastly different on how they yeah. utilize palliative care. Um, but I think that one of the things is that it is becoming a little more common in all three institutions that I've been in just to have, like you said, Kenny, a fresh set of eyes and kind of somebody who can say, I haven't actually been part of this every day. So can you catch me up on where you're at as the anesthesia critical care physician or, you know, to a family member, can you catch me up on what, what everyone's been telling you and figuring out then where do those things not align and how do we help align them? And I've seen that evolve and become more frequent over time. Um, even in my fellowship over three, my pulmonary critical care fellowship, the way that we utilize palliative care changed.
nationally, do you think there are more people going into palliative medicine? And I imagine that the traditional route is internal medicine and then doing a fellowship in palliative. Is that like your typical route to getting there? The typical route is to do internal medicine and then palliative, though palliative is also becoming much more of a common subspecialty for folks coming out of every specialty. So actually within our program, just at the BI, I will say in the classes behind me, the class ahead of me and my class, we've had emergency medicine, neurology, psychiatry, general surgery, me, wow. who I count as like not a traditional person as pulmonary critical care, um, and then two internal medicine folks. And so maybe three. So even within that, it really is becoming something that I think not only in internal medicine specialties and in the intensive care unit, but actually in multiple specialties, there's becoming recognition that we need to be able to utilize palliative care um, to help patients as their as medical complexity advances as we have scientific advances that are able to help patients live longer. Mm -hmm. And I think at a national level, what that means is that it is becoming more popular to do palliative care. And we're actually getting to a point where we do not have enough palliative care providers to provide the palliative care to the patients who need it. Um, and so part of it is looking forward, how do we train non-palliative care providers to provide what we would call primary palliative care or that kind of first line palliative care so that when the specialists, we as specialists are being consulted, certain things have, you know, kind of steps A, B, and C have already been tried, much like we do with other consulting services. So, mm -hmm. right. you know, we we don't call every service for anything related to a lab abnormality or a rhythm right. abnormality for them. And so I think that that's one of the things that's happening nationally is that mm -hmm. we actually, the, the field is trying to keep up now with the demand that we have because we've hopefully done a pretty good job of selling ourselves. And now we have to actually find the manpower to do that. Yeah, I think to your point, there will be more training, definitely in critical care medicine, I think it has to be part of your fellowship training to understand the ins and outs of palliative care. And I feel like I haven't actually formally been taught how to perform a family meeting. A lot mm -hmm. of it has been trial and error. And yeah. you sort of learn from your mistakes and you learn what works really well. Um, so it would be really useful to have tools in your back pocket that you fall on um, and like help you out in difficult situations. Yeah. And I think that would be one of the goals is figuring out how do we integrate that, especially into the specialties who do this a lot um, mm -hmm. with critical care being at the, you know, kind of one of the forefront that comes to my mind for both you and myself. You know, our oncology colleagues and geriatrics colleagues actually do get some formalized palliative care training, but many other specialties do not and would probably benefit from it. Absolutely. So outside of the growing demand for your specialty, what are some typical challenges that you encounter in the palliative care world? Sure. So I think one of the biggest things that we encounter in the palliative care world is really finding, find, trying to build the bridge between what medicine can provide and what patients and families are hoping for. And so part of our job is to elicit what they're hoping for, but part of it is also sometimes naming the fact that hopes may not align with medical feasibility. 
And so I think for me, one of the biggest challenges of this year has been reconciling those things. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've I've developed the skills, even with tougher situations, to figure out what the goals and values are, mm-hmm. but how to actually meet them and navigate that when the medical, when we have medical limitations has become one of the hardest things. And sometimes we end up being the ones who have to say that. Um, so I think that's one of the the big challenges is that we do still have med- medicine is still limited and is it it is a science. It's a growing field for a reason. And so that's one of the biggest challenges for me, I think. I think one of the other things that we run into is still making sure that the teams feel that what we are recommending, is possible in their minds. So even if it's medically feasible, is it the right thing for the team? Um, so those are kinds of some of the things that I think we're running into right now. Um, but if you ask me again in three months, it may be completely different. I know that's like when you're going through a training program, it's like whatever is like on the forefront of your brain seems like the hardest yeah. thing in that moment, right? Right now. Exactly. And it could totally change next yep, week. So. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, I feel you. One thing that comes to mind for me, and I've sort of been able to differentiate these two in my own mind, so it's less of like a common misconception in my own mind, but the difference between hospice and palliative care. And I feel like I remember before this year during my training, I feel like if you brought up palliative care, it would commonly get confused with hospice. How often are you seeing, is, is it still probably a relatively common issue? So with, with patients, we see it a lot. Um, but even with providers, um, we do still see it frequently and it's something that we're really trying to separate the two. We are trained in both. So Mm -hmm. the fellowship is in hospice and palliative medicine, but the two are distinctive entities and palliative does palliative care does not mean hospice. Many, most of the time patients who are on hospice are also receiving concurrent palliative care, but it is not that patients on palliative care are receiving hospice. And I think that that's a really important distinction. Um, we have a lot of patients who we are providing palliative care to who are still getting disease-directed therapy. And they are able to have fulfilling you know, treatments and go on to live long lives. But we provide that extra layer of support, whether it be symptom management or, or psychosocial support, or even just thinking about goals for folks who either are not, like their values aren't in line with hospice yet, or they may not medically qualify for hospice yet. Um, and so we we do run into to folks kind of interchanging the two frequently. And one of our, the top lines that we have to say is that palliative care is not hospice. Right. Um, so it is it is a challenge, but it's getting a little better. You guys should just have buttons for your lanyards yeah. <laughs> that say we that we are not hospice. Time. Yeah, yeah. Palliative yeah. does not equal hospice. Oh, yes, yeah. that's a good that's a good advertisement yeah. for palliative and, medicine. And I think also palliative care is not giving up, and that's one of the things we really. That's want a good to point. To, yes, to that, that, that's a very yeah, that's a very important is, thing. We, you know, we don't. That is not our our role at all, and our role is really to make sure that people are living the best lives that they can, um, with whatever disease they have. And so it is not giving up and we just want to be supporting them through symptoms or decision-making or talking to families or whatever they need. That's our role. 
All right, my last question for you tonight is going to be, this is kind of a big one, so take it wherever you want, but how can the medical community as a whole improve on end-of-life care? That's a great question. There are a few ways that come to mind. I think the first is, and this is probably if there was one thing that I would say that I hope people take away, this is it. Everybody in the world has their own story and has their own lived experience and has their own values. And that in order to provide truly quality palliative care, we have to remember that. And we have to respect that everyone's story is different and thus that their goals may be different for a wide range of reasons. And I think if nothing else, if we can remember that and keep our minds open to that, it helps reduce the distress of ourselves and of our patients and families. So that's the first thing is just being open to that thought. The second thing is that I think we need to not be scared to talk to people early about serious illness because many times we find that people are actually quite clear in their goals once they have a clear picture of their illness. And so I think that's one of the things that we need to do. And then I think the last thing is making sure that we are honoring the the patients and that we are honoring ourselves too um, and, and the training that we've done, but that we are making sure that we are part of what we do in palliative is we really try to care for the entire person, not just the body, not just the spirit, but part of why we have chaplaincy, nursing, social work, physicians, and pharmacy is to take care of the whole person. And that as we're looking forward, we need to keep in mind that Madison can do a lot of amazing things, but at the end of the day, we're taking care of human beings. Um, and so I think that if we just can kind of mentally frame ourselves that way around those things, then those are big changes that would be helpful um, to provide, like, well, honestly, to be provide that primary palliative care that we talked about without needing a palliative specialist in the room to help facilitate that. It's beautiful. That was a great way to summarize everything. Yeah. I think I think my biggest takeaway and it really hopefully summarizes everything you just said here was it's really easy to go through the ins and outs of the easy patients who come to your ICU and they get better and they downgrade but the ones that take up more of your time and become more complex you have to treat them like that you have to treat them like the unique individual that they are and treat them with the same amount of respect that you would anybody else and the more I don't want to frame this as if we're talking about death and that's the only thing that we're talking about, but it seems like the more we become experts in death, the more we're actually becoming experts in what life really means and really valuing that that end of life should not be taken for granted. And that is just as important to that human being and their family members who have to go through that with them than anything else. So absolutely that we one of the things we try to do is if patients are dying, and again, we do not just take care of dying patients in palliative right. care, right. but when patients are dying to make sure that the death they are having is honoring their life's legacy 
and how their family hopes to remember them as well. Well, thank you so much, Katie. I think you've been an incredible voice for the field of palliative medicine. And I think a lot of people who maybe didn't know anything about palliative medicine know a lot more about it. I obviously had some inkling about palliative medicine, and obviously we've run into each other before and had a family meeting together, but you've done an incredible job illustrating all of the ins and outs of palliative medicine that go just beyond end-of-life care and how valuable you guys are to the healthcare community. Well, thank you for having me on, Kenny. I really appreciate it. Of course. I'll see you around the hospital hopefully sometime right. soon. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. If you like this episode of CMO, be sure to hit the subscribe button to the Behind the Drapes podcast, where you can hear more episodes just like this and have the new episodes downloaded to your homepage as they come out. If you want to check out some of the educational content that I put out, check out my social media page on Instagram and TikTok and YouTube, and that's at Keywords by Kenny, at Keywords X Kenny, and that'll get you to these short videos that I put out about different educational topics related to anesthesia and the ICU.